and welcome into the mashup, your number one source for sports gaming and everything in between. I am your host, Jake Patterson, and happy March, everyone. Good thing for many reasons. Daylight savings time is almost over. So, you know, um, sunsets will be getting later. It'll be getting warmer. And of course, college basketball is at its peak. Conference tournaments start this week. Some of the smaller ones like the A-Sun, the Horizon, the Big South. But if you're a college basketball junkie like me, they'll do. And if you have a team in one of those conferences, they will definitely do because you're rooting for your guys. But what a crazy weekend. What an absolutely insane weekend. Clearly, college basketball does not believe in leap year because Saturday was... Technically, February 29th. As far as college basketball was concerned, Saturday was March 1st. Because, oh boy, there were a whole lot of upsets on Saturday. Like, a lot of ranked teams lost. Baylor lost. Duke lost, Maryland lost, like several of the top 10 all took losses on Saturday. I think Maryland, Duke, uh, Florida State, and Baylor are probably the big four because because of those losses, multiple teams now have an outside shot at the ACC regular season title. It's four in the ACC and six have outside shots at the Big Ten regular season title. It's a ridiculous set of circumstances that would have to happen for these six teams to tie, but it is still a possibility that six teams could finish with a 13-7 and Big Ten record, giving them all a tie for first place in the conference regular season. But number nine, Maryland lost. Number 12, Villanova lost. Uh, number 16, Penn State lost, but they were also playing a ranked team. Number 22, Texas Tech lost. Number 2, Baylor. Number 6, Florida State. Number 15, Auburn. Number 20, West Virginia. Number 7, Duke. And that's it for top 25 losses on Saturday. Now, two of those teams were playing other ranked teams, so a ranked team would have to lose in that game. Because Auburn and Kentucky are both ranked, and Penn State and Iowa are both ranked. And I believe they both still are. Yeah, Penn State's still ranked. Iowa has dropped. But Penn State is still ranked. And Auburn and Kentucky are both still ranked. Auburn dropped a little bit, and Kentucky moved up two spots. But they are both still firmly in the top 25. So what a weekend. <laughs> what an insane weekend. Clemson was probably the biggest surprise to me because they've been so up and down this season that they have beaten really good teams. Like they've beaten Florida State, they've beaten Louisville. They've they've gotten a few Big wins. But they have also lost to uh, some not amazing teams. 
over the course of uh, over the course of their season. Yeah, they lost to Yale. I mean, sure, that happened in December, and it was right before Christmas. But they did, in fact, lose to Yale, and they needed overtime to beat North Carolina. So they have been very up and down this season. I think they've still got a case for the tournament just because of the sheer quality of certain wins they have. Like they have two top 10 wins. Three. They have three top 10 wins because they I forgot about that when they beat Duke back at the beginning of January and Duke was number three at the time. So they have three top 10 wins, two of them top five. But they have also lost to Yale. Again, back in December, right before Christmas. So different point of the season. But still, and one of the wildest finishes I've ever seen because Florida State hits the layup to take the one-point lead with like nine seconds left. Clemson just jumps on it. They inbound the ball. They they take it the length of the court, hit the layup with one second left. So not a full-blown buzzer beater, but basically a buzzer beater because all Florida State can really do is inbound the ball and chuck it, which uh, did not work. And Clemson got the big win over Florida State. And that's the big surprise. Florida State only dropped one spot in the polls because of that. They only dropped down to seven from six. So that tells you what the AP at least thinks of Clemson and the fact that losing to them in the way they did on the road is only good for a one position drop. When Auburn lost on the road to a rank, obviously the scoreline was bigger, but Auburn lost on the road to a team ranked higher than them. They dropped two spots. So it's definitely weird just seeing into the mind of the AP when, when you look at the polls. Because certain teams... They either don't move at all despite losses, like Maryland. Maryland did not move at all despite losing to Michigan State, but Michigan State moved up eight spots. So it's it's very weird to stare into the mind of the AP because some of their decisions don't actually make that much sense. One of the other big wins this weekend was... Virginia over Duke and Virginia, despite being defending national champions have not had the best season because they lost a whole lot of talent from the national championship team last year. And I think UVA fans knew this was probably going to be a down ish year because I mean, when you lose Deandre Hunter, you saw what happened to them when they were without DeAndre Hunter the last time they, uh, they lost to UMBC. So clearly when he came back a year later, they won the national championship. So here is, he was clearly a key piece of that team because the 2018 and 2019 teams were not that much different. It was just the 2018 team lost DeAndre Hunter right before the tournament started. And we've all seen the results. 
Then when he came back a year later, they won the whole thing. And now that he's gone pro, they're not as good. Obviously, Tony Bennett is still an incredible coach, given the fact that they are still 21-7 and this year and have an outside shot at the ACC regular season title. I mean, they're in the tournament. If you're near, even when the ACC is down, if you finish near the top of the ACC, you're getting in. With a decent enough record, you're getting in the tournament because the ACC is generally considered a good conference. But Jay Huff, this dude put that Virginia Cavaliers team on his back because, I mean, Diakite. Fair play to him. Mamadi Diakite, he played a role too. He hit the go-ahead shot at the end of the game. But Jay Huff was really the guy who was doing most of the work in that one. Like, Jay Huff, he was the most efficient shooter. Nine rebounds and 15 points. Like... And Diakite was was right behind him. Five rebounds, 14 points. So, sounds about right. Probably the two best players on the team this year. Followed closely by uh, Brandon Key and Kia Clark. And what do you know? Those would be the guys who contributed the most in this game. And the big thing I noticed was... At least early, Duke had some serious trouble with the pack line. Duke had some real trouble with that pack line defense, which I'm not surprised. That's a tough defense to break. And they were having some trouble from three-point range, and that continued through most of the game. They were having some serious trouble from from three-point range, which uh, doesn't help because that is the one thing that's generally open against the pack line defense. And if they're not falling, you ain't winning because it's going to be so hard to get points inside because the whole point of that defense is to just deny the paint. It is to deny anything from inside like 15 feet. The only thing you have open is very long range twos, which are pointless because... There's no point in taking a shot that difficult for two points unless it is the only thing available and threes. Those are the only thing that's open against that defense. And if the long range shots aren't falling, you're not going to have a good time. And Duke ended up shooting four of 17 from three. So yeah, when you shoot that poorly from three against Virginia's defense, you're probably not going to win. And Jay Huff literally had probably one of the the games of his career. Dude had 10 block shots, including one at the very end of the game to seal the win. And good for UVA. They had some rough spots this season just because they were dealing with the loss of DeAndre Hunter because a lot of the team from last year is still there. You're just missing the best player. So they're trying to figure out, they were trying to figure out how to play without him. But I think they've started to find their groove a little bit 
in that way that you can rely on Huff and Diakite. They're obviously not as good as Hunter because he was a lottery pick in the NBA last year. So, I mean, you can't really compare because he's probably one of the best players Virginia has had since Ralph Sampson. I mean, Jay Huff has gotten up there in second in blocks, but uh, that was the big joke. He's never going to catch Ralph because uh, he's a senior, and I think he would need like 300 more blocks to catch Ralph Sampson. So uh, that ain't happening. But UVA got the win, and they have probably solidified a decent spot in the tournament. They were probably getting in anyway, but this really helps their resume. This really helps their resume a lot. And I think they were already off of it, but this pretty definitively knocks Duke off the two line for me. Because this is three losses to unranked opponents in their last like four or five games. That's just not really sustainable at all. Yeah, this is three losses to unranked opponents in their last four games. With NC State, Virginia Tech, Wake Forest, and Virginia. Those were their last four. They lost three of them. I mean, all three of those losses were on the road, but good teams went on the road. So I think this definitively knocks Duke off the two line. Because they have they have NC State, as I'm recording this, tonight. So when you're listening to this, that game will already be over. Uh, you can make fun of me if this is incorrect, but I'm thinking they're going to win that one just because it's at home. And they have North Carolina on Saturday. So they don't really have enough left in the regular season to really rebuild their resume. Because I don't think winning the ACC tournament is going to be enough to build them back up to a two. And really, they don't have much to gain from the ACC tournament. Because I could see them not winning it and maybe dropping off the three line down to a four. Which, let's be real. If, if you're a four seed, you're still fine in the grand scheme of the tournament. You're not like oh, we're going to barely make the second weekend as a four. But still, the idea of Duke dropping that low on the seed line is kind of weird because for most of my life, they've been ones, twos. Like, getting a three seed is a down year for them. This is a very down year for Duke because they're pretty much locked into three, and if the ACC tournament doesn't go well, they could drop to four. And it doesn't get as much publicity as 12-5, but 13-4 is just as much a danger zone as 12-5 is. It's happened almost as much, if not a little more, than the 12-5 upset. So 13-4 is still just as much a danger zone as as 12-5. So they uh they need to be careful. I don't know who they'd run into as the four. I don't know who that 13 would be. 
it's probably going to be one of the teams who wins a a smaller conference is going to hit the is going to hit the 13 and is going to get matched up with Duke. But depending on who they match up with, it'll be very interesting to see who they get on the other side of that. Because if it's the right team, Duke could be a first round exit depending on who it is. And I'd be a hundred percent okay with that. I'd be a hundred percent okay with that because laughing at Duke would be kind of amazing because everyone loves to laugh at Duke and everyone loves to laugh at the, uh, very likely excuses that would come from coach K if they lost to a 13. God, that would be funny. The other thing that happened this weekend was Maryland lost to Michigan State at home in pretty ugly game for them. I mean, look, Michigan State's good. They've started to realize that they are, in fact, a good team. And Cassius Winston is, in fact, ridiculously good at basketball. So they probably should be winning. But how do you come out, Maryland, how do you come out and lay an egg like that? Probably your biggest home game in years. It's your first chance to clinch a regular season title since, what, 2005? So the seniors at Maryland would have been seven. Yeah, that's your your biggest home game since... Your seniors were in the second grade. And you just come out there and lay an egg like that. And look, I've seen this team pretty much in Turgeon's entire tenure as head coach. I'm used to total scoring droughts, like long extended scoring droughts. But the thing about other Turgeon teams was the long extended scoring droughts would at least be accompanied by reasonable enough defense. Now this Maryland team also comes with mind boggling defensive lapses where the other team just basically can't miss for about three minutes. And at the same, and for those same three minutes, Maryland can't score to save their lives. And this is why I don't trust them. I mean, look, I don't trust Michigan State in the tournament either because they have bitten me one too many times when I've picked them to go far in bracket challenges only for them to lose in the first or second round. So I also have zero faith in Michigan State to do anything in the tournament because that's just what they do. I had faith in this Maryland team for a little bit that maybe they were different. This Michigan State game reminded me that I should never really have faith in them as long as Turgeon's the coach. Because when you're this year in particular, when your best player is a big, you are going to have problems. Because other teams, other Maryland teams just in the past few years have had really good guards. And I'm not saying Anthony Cowan's bad. But for whatever reason this year, he hasn't been the guy who can really take over a game. He's done it a couple times, but 
not really enough to justify calling him the best player on the team because he's not. That's Jalen Smith. He's up there, and Eric Ayala's good, and Dante Scott, and other guys on the team are good. But something is just off. They have a lot, like I said, they have a lot of defensive lapses. They have long, long scoring droughts. And this game proved it. And they've been better at home this year. So the fact that they had a very hyped Xfinity Center crowd, like a really hyped crowd. Biggest home game in probably 15 plus years. And they just come out and they lay an egg like that. They had a couple of runs in them, but it wasn't enough. It was never enough to really get back in it and put Michigan State away and win a game you probably should have won because, look, they'll probably still win the Big Ten regular season title, but it would have been really nice to win it at home against another ranked team when you've got college game day, you've got the flash mob, Scott Van Pelt's there, and you you couldn't pull it off. You couldn't get the win over the team who's kind of become one of your Big Ten rivals, at least in basketball. Because you can't really call anyone a rival in football because your football team is hot garbage. So that's what I've got for college basketball. It was an insane weekend. I am ready for the tournament to get here because I feel like this weekend was the first real teaser. It seems like when the calendar flips to March, college basketball is like, it's time and just gets crazy. We got that this past weekend and hopefully we'll get it again this weekend with some of the smaller conference tournaments, either kicking up, kicking off or wrapping up. Because, like, the ASUN tournament starts during the week. As I'm recording this tomorrow, as you're listening to this, if you listen to it the day it comes out, it starts tonight. So, like, we are there. We have we have basically hit postseason. Not everybody has yet, but we're pretty much there. So, uh, everyone buckle up. It's about to get nuts. But that's what I've got for college basketball up next. Pretty fun weekend in Houston for the Overwatch League. I'll recap it here on the mashup. All right, time for another competition, if you want to call it that, that had a pretty big weekend. The Overwatch League was in Houston, and it went about how I expected it to go. New York, Excelsior, and Philly Fusion both... 3 0 inferior competition, as you would expect from probably two of the Titans. I still don't know if I trust NYXL because they have only played bad teams so far. Philly has just played mostly bad teams. Well, they beat Washington, so I think that kind of solidifies them a little bit more. And they're also 5-0. and And again, they've had a pretty easy schedule too because... Boston, Florida. These are not the most impressive of wins. Really? I mean, they they had a rough go of it against Toronto, but I have a theory about that when I get more into uh, Toronto and Houston in particular. 
so the two Titans, they came in, they three out inferior competition, and they went home. New York was clearly better than Florida. Philly was clearly better than Boston. And I think everyone knew that coming into the weekend. Atlanta in their Saturday game looked super dominant. Super dominant against Toronto. And that's what I expected to see from them on Sunday against Paris. But that didn't happen. Paris beat them 3-1. And most of those were pretty convincing. And I was really surprised by that because what I saw on Saturday made me really impressed with Atlanta. Baby Bay was really good at flanking. The supports were great. The tanks were great. Everyone was playing ridiculously well. That that perfect timing from Pacpo and Dogman. Dogman to hit the Ant Matrix. And as it was going up, Pacpo hit his Fire Strike with Reinhardt. And it went through the Ant Matrix and took out like four or five people from the Defiant all at once. That was some impeccable timing and a really good idea because... I don't think I've seen that very often because normally Baptiste is the only one really shooting through the ant matrix, but to hit a fire strike through it and take out four or five people in one go with one alt and one ability, it's pretty good. It's pretty darn good. But then they just kind of fell flat against Paris. Paris looked like they had really game planned for them. Obviously they didn't have a match on, Saturday, so they were just kind of able to sit back and watch what Atlanta was doing against Toronto, and whatever they saw, they figured something out, because they took it to Atlanta. They really took it to Atlanta. And the one thing I've really noticed is that Paris is really good. XE and FD God and Soon and... Really, that entire team are really, really good. They impress me more with each passing event they're at because they have beaten some good teams. Like, Atlanta looked super dominant on Saturday. They get stomped by Paris on Sunday. Paris beats the Justice in Washington also pretty convincingly last week. They weren't in Philly, and they looked pretty darn good in New York, too, when they just stomped all over London. They lost to Toronto, which I don't get, and I think lends more to my theory about Toronto, that Toronto is going to be the most inconsistent team this season. It's going to be them in London are going to be the two most inconsistent teams all year long. Boston is just going to be bad. Houston will probably be well below average. And Toronto and London are going to be wildly inconsistent because they will play to the level of their competition. I think it's going to come to the two of them who are going to play to the level of their competition most of the season and have some really big wins or really great performances against teams they have no business really competing with because they are significantly better than them. But they will also be 
in close matches with teams they have no business losing to. Toronto this weekend was the most extreme example, actually losing to Houston and getting pretty dominated on Horizon. They got absolutely dominated on Horizon Lunar Colony in Map 3. King's Row was close, and they they won Nepal because control maps are weird. But King's Row and Dorado were both relatively close. Houston was definitely the better team on Dorado, but that was more the momentum from just the massive win on Horizon, where they basically full-held Toronto. I think Toronto got like a point and a half of permanent progress. So Houston basically didn't have to do anything on horizon to win it. And after that happened, there was no way Toronto was going to win on Dorado. Like there was just no way the crowd was behind Houston. That place was rocking and there was just no way they were going to lose that last map after they kind of embarrassed themselves on Horizon. Because they did really not look good. They really didn't look good. They had a few moments of like smart plays, but it just wasn't enough. They got pretty wrecked, and then they just got demoralized heading into Dorado. And they lost map that map too, and Houston took the series 3-1. It's kind of weird when... You see stuff like that. And really, they looked bad in just their entire defense on King's Row. Because that one went to overtime, but they didn't have any time in the time bank. And Houston had enough to not give Toronto any. So the worst result Houston could have gotten on King's Row was a draw because Toronto wasn't going to have another chance to attack. And they took that 33% on point A pretty quickly. They lost a couple fights, but Houston was clearly the better team overall on King's Row because once they were on offense, boom, it was over. They rolled through on offense. They rolled through in their overtime rounds and they won the map 4-3. And it's the most balanced map in the game. So... If you went on King's Row, like, you played really well because it's the most balanced map in the game. There's no real... There's obviously spawn advantage because there's spawn advantage on any payloader. King's Row spawn advantage is not as bad as others. Say, Hollywood, Hanamura, Havana. There's a few maps where spawn advantage is crazy. It's not too bad on King's Row because they have to come a little bit further out. So if you win that map, you've done really well. And that was kind of the beginning and the end for Defiant because they just looked lost on that defense when Houston got their turn to attack. They looked pretty good on attack, but their defense on King's Row looked really bad. And then their and then their offense on Horizon and Dorado were not great. Their offense on Horizon and Dorado were really, really not great. They 
had really no plans for them to still run Sombra and Doomfist on a map that's not really great for them, like Dorado is. Dorado is not good for Doomfist and Sombra, but Houston was still running them and used them effectively where Toronto barely got past the first point on Dorado, and that was it. And Houston's like, okay, we can do that, and just they... They took both points pretty easily and they won the series and credit to them because that crowd was really showing up for them despite them being winless coming into this weekend. And really, I thought if they got a win, it would have been against London because I had actually seen that inconsistency from London. Now, I've seen a pattern of inconsistency from Toronto too. And I think they're going to be those two teams that every time they play, you never know who you're going to get. Like you could get the Toronto Defiant who pretty, pretty convincingly stomped Paris, or you can get the Toronto Defiant who lost three, one to the Houston Outlaws. You don't know who you're going to get. Same thing with London. You can get the guys who just barely squeaked by the outlaws or you can get the team who beat the Justice in five and reverse swept them. So I don't really know who you're going to get with the two of them. And I think that's going to be a storyline to watch this season with London and Toronto's uh, consistency issues. So we'll see if that continues to be a pattern. London's off next week. Toronto has one game against Florida. Florida is not very good. So if Florida wins that or looks really good against Toronto, we'll know that something's up with the Defiant and they're either having some communication or execution issues because they have some questions they need to answer this week. And they only have one game next weekend instead of two. So hopefully they are... They are prepared for a not great Florida Mayhem team. And the other thing that is announced yesterday, as I'm recording this Sunday for everyone else listening, Sunday on the Watchpoint Post Show, we got the first hero ban pool. I can honestly say I was pretty surprised because I did not know it was random selection. I thought it was just the the most dominant heroes. So I thought it was going to be McCree and May. But it's anyone who has gotten a pick rate of at least 10% is potential has the potential to be banned out, and they are randomly selected. So your one tank is Reinhardt, your one support is Moira, and your two DPSs are McCree and Widow. So without Reinhardt in the pool but Lucio still in I think next weekend you're going to see a whole lot of dive just given the teams that are going to be in Washington next week Toronto Florida Paris Houston Boston Washington obviously Philly New York and Atlanta you're going to see a lot of dive <laughs> you're going to see a whole lot of dive from these teams particularly probably Houston and Philly and maybe Washington and 
and uh, Paris as well. I think you'll see a lot of dive from basically everyone but New York because New York will never change. They will always be the most passive team in Overwatch League. So they're probably going to play Orisa. They're probably going to play a whole lot of Bunker. And everyone else is just going to be diving into them and it's going to be great. It's the exact opposite of what last season was because if if there's no Reinhardt, you basically have two options. You can either play Orisa, which most tanks find which most tank players find incredibly boring. Uh viewers do as well. And you can't do double shield, so true bunker is gonna be kinda hard. I'm glad double shield's not an option this weekend. But it was very interesting to see May get banned out. She's probably going to be used to counter a lot of the dive that is probably going to come in from some of the teams that are like, okay, Reinhardt's banned out. We use Winston. I would love a nice Winston-Diva combo with Hackfist on DPS and you do Ana and Mercy or Ana and Lucio supports. That would be really fun. I would be 100% okay with that because dive is the exact opposite of what we had last year that made Overwatch League so boring. So Overwatch League players, if you want to take this band pool and give us a crap ton of dive next weekend in Washington, you have the permission of the entire fan base because dive is way more fun to watch than bunker. Dive is much, much more fun to watch. Please don't use the absence of Moira as an excuse to play Baptiste and Brig. Now, if Lucio got banned out, maybe. Lucio will probably get banned out next week, if uh, <laughs> if we're being honest. May probably will, too. We'll find out. Now they're going to announce it on the post-show every Sunday is who gets banned out for the following week. And the good thing is, no one will ever get banned two weeks in a row. So, guaranteed, Reinhardt, Moira, McCree, and Widowmaker will all be playable again the weekend of March 14th. But they are out for the 7th and the 8th. I'm interested to see what this does. Because there are teams who will be able to adjust to this, and there are teams who won't. I don't think Toronto will be able to adjust. I don't think Boston will be able to adjust, but I think Houston, Philly, Washington probably will. New York is a question mark because I don't know really what they're going to play without McCree. Because they can't play May McCree now. So New York is the big question mark. Toronto are going to be lost. I'm sure they'll play they'll probably play Hackfist because that is well within uh Shore 4 and uh Agility's hero pools. They'll probably play Hackfist. Houston almost guaranteed is going to play a whole lot of Hackfist this weekend. Philly, we might get an appearance from Chipsa with the fact that Doomfist is going to be very meta this weekend. Get that British Get that British Doomfist one trick out there and have him play with Carpe. <laughs> and have Carpe play uh, Sombra. That would be nuts. And I'm here for it. So I am very interested to see what hero pools do to the meta overall. We know who's banned out. 
I want to see it in action. I want to see how it causes people to play. And there was a first this weekend, something I would have never thought possible until Overwatch League introduced the concept of numbers into esports. The Houston Outlaws retired a jersey this weekend. The number 76 of one of their original DPS players who uh, somehow lucked out with just his real name as his gamer tag, Jake. Which I find hilarious because everyone else in Overwatch League has like really gamer taggy gamer tags. Bird rings, seagull. Heck, members of his own team have raucous, spelled with a W. And he's just Jake. Just his real name. And they retired his number 76. And most of it was pretty good. They had the video package with some of his big highlights. Cutaways of him. Cutaways of his teammates. Cutaways of his now broadcast colleagues. Cutaways to front office staff from the Outlaws. Like, it was a really well-made package. Props to you, with the Outlaws uh, Communications Department, whoever made that. I'm sure that was a team effort, but everyone who made that, the camera crew, the editors, you guys did awesome on that. But it kind of fell flat at the end because he came out on the stage, got the big hometown cheer from the crowd, and it just kind of fell flat because the GM seemed very uncomfortable up on stage, uh, Flame. Flame just felt super uncomfortable up on stage. At least that's what I saw. And him just kind of saying, yeah, we're going to retire your jersey. Like, it kind of fell flat without the banner. That's the big thing. It's like, when you retire someone's jersey, you have the big banner that goes up to the ceiling. Now, I know Revenge Music Center is not a outlaws-only venue. It is not exclusively theirs. So hopefully, if and when they do get their own venue, there is some kind of banner with, like, Jake, number 76, DPS, 2018 to 2019. Like, put something up there to actually, like, enshrine the guy, because that's part of the retiring of numbers. You either put just the number out there or you put the number with a picture of them and their name. And when they play, that's what the flyers do. The Orioles just have the numbers and then they have the statues like do something. It was really good up until the very end when it kind of fell flat because there was nothing. There was no like, like even a frame, like even his Jersey in a frame, which I know is incredibly high school, but you should have at least had something physical like a plaque. A plaque would have been really cool. A plaque would have actually worked really well. Cause you can't hang a banner in a concert hall that is not exclusively yours, but they needed to do something because everything else about it was great. And I actually like the concept of retiring numbers that also implies that there will one day be an Overwatch League Hall of Fame if the league can stick around for long enough. I really like the idea of adopting certain traditions from old school sports like basketball and hockey and just regular professional sports 
and grafting it onto esports because it gives something people they can connect to. Like the guys wearing numbers and city based teams. Like it gives people something to connect to. I probably wouldn't have jumped in as hard on professional Overwatch as I did if I wasn't immediately drawn in by the fact that they are the Philadelphia fusion. I probably wouldn't have been drawn in as much, but since they have the city based team structure, like that is going to draw other fans in. So keep up with the basically stealing ideas from traditional sports like Jersey retirements and maybe potentially a hall of fame. But all in all, it was a pretty good weekend from Houston. Mostly predictable results. I figured Houston would get a win with the home crowd advantage. I thought it was going to be London. It turned out to be Toronto. But they kept it close with London too, so I was almost right. It's not like they got totally stomped and I was like, well, crap. No, I was actually pretty close off. I'll preview Washington, the next Washington homestand on Friday's show. That should be... A reasonably good one because there's a few matchups that are really jumping out at me on this one. So we'll get into that on Friday's show. And yeah, that's all I got for Overwatch. So switch it up. Talk some NBA up next here on the mashup. All right. Time for some NBA talk. And I have seen some really dumb takes in my time. I have just seen one of the dumbest and the way this article is written makes it seem even dumber. If we're being honest with ourselves, Zion Williamson should be NBA co-rookie of the year. No, uh, no, 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 no. That is stupid. And the guy who wrote this article LeJethro Jenkins wrote this for Yahoo. He wrote this like it was some great adventure, some breaking of social norms. No, it is a cop-out. It's a cop-out. It is not this breaking of the rules and conventions of basketball. No, it's a cop-out to give Rookie of the Year to both guys who, going into the year, were preseason favorites. Guess what? It is rookie of the year, meaning the entire year. He is, Zion will have barely played half of the season. John Morant has played basically the entire season. And the Grizzlies are in playoff contention because he has been playing so well. John Morant is the rookie of the year. Look. I get it. Zion has been amazing. Zion has been great in every single game he's played in. But he didn't play until 2020. It was after the new year that he played his first game. He is not rookie of the year. And it's even dumber to say, well, they should make them co-rookies of the year. That is a cop-out. That is a cop-out solution to a problem that shouldn't even be a problem. Look, it sucks Zion got injured in preseason. 
it's terrible that we were robbed of the first half of his season, which probably also would have been amazing and would have put him in much more legitimate conversation for Rookie of the Year. If he had played all year, he probably would have won it. He's probably still going to win it because the media wants to push him as the next LeBron James. And even LeBron James wants to push him as the next LeBron James. But he is not Rookie of the Year. He's got all these stats that, oh, he you a rookie hasn't done this since Allen Iverson, or a rookie hasn't done this since Shaq. The last rookie of the year to average at least 23 points was Allen Iverson, and the last rookie of the year to be that efficient from the field was Shaq. All right. They both played in different eras of the NBA. <laughs> What's your point? Then you get into the advanced analytics and you see he's scoring the most points per minute of any rookie ever. Yeah, he's special. (laughs) So is John Morant. The Pelicans on paper are a better team than the Grizzlies. The Pelicans can do more because he has more talent around him. John Morant is taking a team most people finish pick to finish between like 10th and 12th or worse in the West and has them in a playoff spot. A playoff spot they held on to after a pretty long losing streak. John Morant is the rookie of the year. And I really hope this co-rookie of the year thing doesn't take off, because it's stupid. It's so dumb. It should be John Morant. He hasn't played as many games... And on paper, the Pelicans are better than the Grizzlies, but they are still lower in the Western Conference standings. What does that tell you? Everything points to John Morant being Rookie of the Year. It should be him, and it should only be him. There is only one Rookie of the Year, not two. It is a singular award that goes to one person. You can't give two people finals MVP. You can't give two people defensive player of the year. They are all singular. Most valuable player of the NBA finals. Player. Rookie of the year. Defensive player of the year. They are all singular. First team all rookie is five people. (laughs) But rookie of the year is one person. Stop. I know you want to give Zion rookie of the year, but he didn't play the full year. He was injured for the first half of it. He came in and he did amazing things, but he didn't play the first half of the year. He shouldn't be Rookie of the Year. It should go to John Morant. Anyway, one of the other stories that has been floating around that I am very happy about. Thank God, trade rumors for Al Horford are starting. Because this is a signing I was really happy about when it happened. I have turned on it very quickly because he has not been producing at all for the Sixers with that absolutely fat contract they gave him. They gave him a ridiculous contract. 
and he's owed $69 million guaranteed for the next three years. I do not want the Sixers to pay that. Because he has not been good enough this year to be worth that kind of money. At all. Not even close. The fans have turned on him. He clearly doesn't really want to be in Philly anymore. And he's not producing. Offensively or defensively. So, maybe someone else can take him off our hands. And thankfully, the trade rumors that I've seen are actually pretty good. Cleveland, not a bad return from them that is suggested. I don't know if Cleveland would go for this. The Wizards, this one seems a little out there to me. The I'll read this one. Washington receives Al Horford and Mike Scott. I know a few Sixers fans who would not be happy about uh, Mike Scott getting traded. And then John Wall and Mo Wagner. I would love to have Mo Wagner on the Sixers. John Wall... His contract is also uh, downright awful. It's a massive cap hit. But John Wall is a good player. And sure, he's on a very long injury. It was just super unfortunate last year that knocked him out for a full year. He's, he's going to be back soon-ish. And these are all off-season talks. But I would love it if the Sixers could get Mo Wagner. I would actually really like that trade. I don't know if any of these suggestions from CBS Sports would happen. It's a pretty reputable site, so they know their stuff. And, I mean, there's no draft picks involved in this, which I definitely like. It's just two players straight up. The Golden State Warriors suggestion isn't bad. I'd like, I'd like having Jordan Poole because he's a good option for some shooting and some ball handling. That would be really, really good. And Andrew Wiggins, who's been decent enough in Golden State since the trade. Yeah, that's not, that's not terrible. But for the most part, I like the idea that people are starting to talk about trading Al Horford because you need to get him out of Philly because he I don't think he wants to be here. He's not producing, and he's not worth that contract. I mean, he wouldn't be really worth that contract anywhere, but at least Elton Brand has seen his mistake, if he actually does go through with this, in signing him to that absolutely ridiculous contract and getting it off the books. Even if you have to eat some of that salary, that's fine. I don't normally like dead money, but clearing up a roster spot for someone else and clearing at least some cap space to get some better shooting options in can only be a good thing for the Sixers. Because really, that's a dead roster spot. It is doing you no good. He's averaging 11.7 points a game. He hasn't come close to that lately. He's been struggling offensively. And the fans have turned on him. I, like I said, I don't think he wants to be here. And it's time to make a change because the Sixers aren't doing anything this year. With their current lineup, they are not going to make even the Eastern Conference Finals, probably. Last year was their best chance. 
and the luckiest shot ever happened. Last year was their best chance. Now they have to find a way to get back there. And Al Horford is not the guy. I know he wanted to leave, but they if they had found a way to keep Jimmy Butler around and J.J. Redick around, this would be a different team. But that didn't happen, so now they're useless on the road with an absolutely massive contract given to an older guy that is not producing really at all. And they're just kind of treading water while being absolutely dominant at home and god-awful on the road. You can't win a playoff series that way because to win a playoff series, unless you're the one seed, really, you have to win on the road. You have to win on the road if you are any, at some point, if you are anything other than the one seed. So, Sixers, I have started to give up on you this season because I don't think you can do much. I'm still a fan, but I don't have much hope for what you're going to do. So, I hope in the offseason you can figure out a way to get rid of Al Horford and make this team better. But for right now, I don't have much hope of what they're going to do the rest of the season. So thankfully, if any of these rumors are true, you're at least trying to do something. That's it for the NBA. One last segment of the show today. Get back into some League of Legends because some interesting stuff happened this weekend. And the Valorant trailer dropped. So uh, we'll get into that and then we'll wrap up the show. That's up next here on the Mashup. All right, final segment of the show, and we're back talking some League of Legends. It's been a while, because the LCS has been kind of mediocre this year. FlyQuest has, in the past couple weeks, started to establish themselves as the second best team again, which, out of the two, I thought it'd be Dignitas. I was wrong. It's FlyQuest. Cloud9 are still clearly the best because they still have not lost one of their mid lane turrets in 11 games. They have not lost one of their mid lane turrets yet. Obviously, they're undefeated because mid lane is normally the lane everyone goes down at the end of a game. So, yeah, they haven't lost a turret there yet. That's kind of insane. So, they have locked up a playoff spot. Uh, shocker. They're 11-0. and 0, And they have proven all the haters, that, including me, that said getting rid of Sneaky was a bad idea. Very wrong! Because Sven and Vulcan have played really well together in bot lane. But Vulcan has been begging for player of the week for basically the entire season now. I mean, Froggen deserved it week one. Sven deserved it week two. Like, but Vulcan's just been begging for player of the week basically every week since then. And he should probably get it. Like, just every week. Because really, he is the reason Sven went on that ridiculous tear of basically not dying until, what, like week four? Dude had a ridiculous streak of 
staying alive and he still has an insane KDA like the best in the entire world how does that even happen like seriously how does that actually happen that Sven's just ridiculous KDA has stayed super ridiculous despite him dying a couple times now we were all so wrong about him. <laughs> the dude has played amazing on Cloud9. Like, I thought after that disaster he had last year against Liquid that that will live with him forever. That will stick with him for the rest of his career. But if Cloud9 can win spring playoffs this year, which I think they can and probably will because... No one else is that good this year and make any kind of noise in MSI whenever it happens. They don't even have to win the thing. Be nice as a fan of NA League that Cloud9 wins MSI because Team Liquid got very close last year. Kind of. They got dumpstered by G2, but they were in the finals. <laughs> Cloud9 this year is better than that Team Liquid team last year. Significantly better. So they can definitely win spring playoffs and they can definitely make noise at MSI. Because, let's be honest, the LPL is about to start playing again. Soon. But they're going to be playing online They've been off for over a month, and they're going to be rusty. So whoever wins LPL Spring will not be the ridiculously heavy favorite they would normally be. Same with LCK. Like, it could very well be going into MSI that likely Cloud9 and the whoever ends up representing the LEC could be Origin, could be G2, could be Rogue. It the LEC is a bit more of a toss-up, but especially if it's G2 or Origin, they could very well be especially G2, really. If it's G2, they could they're probably going to be the favorite anyway. But with what could be a very down China and Korea this year because they haven't been able to play consistently in the case of China at all. You could have your top two favorites to win MSI as teams from Europe and, and North America. That'd be insane because G2 wasn't the favorite to win going in last year. It was IG reigning world champions, IG who had already beaten one of G2's best players just a few, less than a year earlier at Worlds. But G2 won the whole thing. I could very well see Cloud9 winning MSI this year because as of right now, MSI is still happening. Riot just delayed the announcement of its time and location. But MSI is still happening as of right now. So, it could very well happen that you get another North America versus Europe final 
Because Cloud9 versus G2 or Origin would be really fun. And NA, Cloud9, could win. And if a North American team comes back home with an MSI trophy after the struggle that was Worlds 2019, that would revitalize fans' faith in the scene to get anything done. It would revitalize my faith in the North American pro scene. I don't know if it would drive up interest massively, but it would at least do something. It would revitalize hope for the few diehard North American fans that are out there that are waiting for one of our teams to just do something internationally. If they can pull it off, I would lose my mind. You guys would hear me on this show freaking out. And Cloud9's not even my team. I'm a 100 Thieves fan. But they've been mostly disappointing in the LCS this year. But I would still lose my mind if Cloud9 won MSI. That's a big deal. Even if Cloud9 isn't your team. If you're a North American League of Legends fan, winning MSI is a huge deal. And they can do it. They could really do it. I really hope I'm right, because that would be amazing. But there could be a thorn in that plan, because Team Liquid may have found a solution to their issues, and it's not one I would have ever imagined, because Doublelift was sick this weekend, and he didn't get to play. So they had to play their backup, Tactical. And they looked better than they have all season long. That tells me maybe the problem's been double lift this whole time. Which I would not have expected because most people agree he is the best North American AD ever. He's the best North American ADC ever, but his teams always struggle. And maybe... Without him and them playing better, that could just be a thing of, oh, it's Tactical's first big game on the LCS stage. He had the adrenaline rush and he played better. He played above his level. That could very well be what happened. But even the official Team Liquid Twitter account was uh, was kind of roasting him. That old Beatles meme of, uh, I don't know who they originally asked, but they asked one of the Beatles, who's the best... It is one of these guys the best player in the world? And it's like, best in the world? He's not even the best in the Beatles. Like, they they did that. Is, is Peter the best ADC in North America? In North America, he's not, the, he's not even the best on Team Liquid. Like, the fact that even Team Liquid's official Twitter account was dropping some fire memes on Double Lift, which... I think he probably laughed at because he is the ultimate trash talker. He's a big time trash talker. So, and good trash talkers can dish it out, but they can also take it. So hopefully he, he took it in good spirits like the joke it was, but it was still pretty funny that the official team account is roasting who is supposed to be their best player when his backup won them two games this weekend, basically. Like obviously, 
League of Legends is very much a team game, but they went 2-0 this weekend. It's been a while since they've gone 2-0 in a single weekend. Doesn't look like they have it all this season. <laughs> so, in all of 2020, they have yet to go 2-0. And they put someone not named Double Lift in it at 80 carry. And what do you know? They go 2-0. Says something, doesn't it? It could be nothing. It could be something. I'll... I'll have to see if Double Lift is good to play next weekend. If he's not, and Tactical goes again, and they go 2-0 again. Which, who are they playing? They are playing... They are playing Counter Logic Gaming on Saturday. Uh, that's probably a win, no matter who's playing ADC. And then they play Immortals next Monday the 9th. So, they could probably go 2-0 either way, because that's a pretty easy schedule. But, and if Double Lift is playing and they go 2-0 again, that'll probably shut all of this down. But if he can't, and Tactical goes 2-0 again next weekend, this is going to get even louder. And, I mean, this year's kind of been a year of change in the LCS. We've had orgs coming back. EG and Dignitas. We've had mainstays of, of teams leaving rosters. Like it's been a big year for the LCS. If Double Lift goes too, much like the NFL, we could be entering a new era for competitive league in North America. Because with Sneaky and Double Lift both gone be time for the next wave to step up and hopefully they can I don't know if they're ready but hopefully they can and in other riot news obviously probably the big story of really the entire week as far as gaming and esports news goes the project A trailer it now has an official title it is called Valorant which gotta admit pretty cool name the first gameplay footage has been revealed. It was just a single round of of gameplay with the dev team from Riot. And I got to admit, I was pretty intrigued. The art design is really cool. I think the graphics will get better because I'm pretty sure this was a pre-alpha build in the gameplay reveal. So this is very, very early. It was obviously a later round because both teams had a pretty built-up economy. So they were buying like their major abilities and some pretty big guns. So not every round is going to look like what it looked like in that single round of gameplay video. Because if it's anything like CSGO, these are going to be some long games. Because competitive CSGO and regular at-home CSGO, you have to win 16 rounds. This is a long game. <laughs> This is a very long game. So, like, you build up your economy over the course of the game. And I'm comparing it to CSGO because if you haven't seen the gameplay trailer, go watch it. Because it is very heavily CSGO inspired. 
which not a surprise. They hired a lot of old CSGO devs away from Valve to work on this game. So really not surprising that is heavily inspired by kind of the original big time tactical shooter that it was able to break into the esports scene. But I am really intrigued. I like some of the abilities. Certain characters looked a little bit overpowered, but it's Riot. <laughs> they can't balance their game that's been out 10 years. I do not expect them to have a game in pre-alpha balanced correctly. Because League of Legends is not balanced correctly. And it's been out for over 10 years. <laughs> so... I can't really fault them for that because anyone who has played any Riot game ever knows they kind of suck at balancing. But the character design is really cool. I like a lot of the character concepts. Uh, Brimstone. I don't necessarily know what all the characters look like yet, but I like his ideas. He's got the big mega space laser as his ult. That's kind of fun. Uh, heavy Overwatch inspiration from a lot of the characters. Healing orbs. Spy arrows. Like, this sounds like Overwatch. Got a little bit of Apex vibes, too. Like, Echo drones from a little bit of Siege. Like, it is definitely taking inspiration from other hero shooters and other tactical shooters. A little bit of Team Fortress 2 in it as well. So, they're taking inspiration from a lot of other games and I'm not surprised because again, most of the dev teams are old valve guys. So it's no surprise that they're also taking inspiration from team fortress Two, because also a valve game, a very fun valve game that I very much enjoyed playing when it was still, you know, alive overwatch came along and kind of killed it, <laughs> killed it pretty hard too. I mean, I don't know anyone who plays team fortress anymore. But people still play CS, and this is CS's first real competitor, so maybe uh, maybe Valve will beef up the CSGO scene a little bit, too. It can't hurt. It's been one of the most popular games in the world forever, and them beefing it back up can't be a bad thing. Even if it, their competition comes from an unlikely source like Riot. So, overall, I am very interested in what this game is going to be. And the fact that it's coming out this summer, like, they're probably going to have a public beta pretty soon. <laughs> probably sometime in, like, April, I'm, I'm thinking. If they're projecting a summer release, they'll probably have a beta in about a month. Which... I'm cool with that. I'm definitely going to play it because I'm very intrigued by this idea of mixing CSGO and Overwatch because those are clearly the two heaviest inspirations. I saw a lot of people on Twitter also saying old school Shadowrun for the Xbox. A lot of similar vibes to that. I never played Shadowrun. I was more of a straight Halo guy in 2007 and I was also... 12, 13 years old. So I wasn't playing that many like obscure games. I was playing Halo at that point in my life. So hopefully this game is good. 
the hype behind it is absolutely insane. Not really a surprise because it's kind of a spiritual successor to CSGO just made by another company with old CSGO devs. So I'm very interested to see what little bit I've seen of the lore is also very intriguing. It's got an explanation for why everyone has basically superpowers for why the world is so different now. I I'm really liking that. So I'm definitely interested to see more from this game and I'm interested in an e- in its esports scene too because there could be guys who flip. There could be guys who flip from Overwatch, there could be guys who flip from CS. And there could be guys who flip from Apex. Those are probably the most likely 3 that are going to flip over. I don't think Siege players will because Ubisoft just dumped a whole crap load of money into that scene and now is not the now is not the time to leave Siege. But I could see a few Overwatch guys, maybe like fringe Overwatch League guys, not guys who are secure in their roster spots. Like I don't think Sure4 is going to switch games. I don't think Sinatra or Carpe or EQO or anyone who's like solidly a good Overwatch League player is going to switch. But maybe some like guys who are maybe bouncing between contenders and Overwatch League a lot, they might jump. Same thing with CSGO, like fringe CSGO pro league guys are probably going to jump. Apex guys are probably going to jump. It'll be very interesting to see because the first person shooter market is a lot more saturated as far as number of games go, number of popular games go than other esports. Because there's other MOBAs out there, but really there's only two. Heroes of the Storm and Smite, as much as I loved Smite, are kind of irrelevant overall. There, so there's really only two. Fighting games, that's all one big community, and you can play multiple games within the FGC and be fine. Like, you could play Street Fighter and Tekken and Mortal Kombat and Injustice, and you're probably okay. I mean, you probably specialize in one of those four, but you could probably play at least two of them. And then, but with first-person shooters, there are so many. Because you have all the BR games, which are first and third-person. You have Overwatch, you have Call of Duty, you have CSGO, Siege, and now Valorant. That's six different games that basically all of them would pretty much require you to commit to one of them in pro play. So I'm very interested to see if anyone jumps ship or if it will just build up its own competitive scene or the much more likely option, a mixture of the two. You'll get a few guys jumping games and guys who take to this game ridiculously quick and end up becoming the first wave of pro players who are homegrown to Valorant players. So we'll see. A few more months before release, and I'm very excited because it is, in fact, free to play, which is a good thing. They're going to launch with about 12 characters, too, which I think is a good number. That's a good first number to start. It's very similar number to what League started with, and it'll be much easier for Riot's historically not great balance team to balance. Ugh, 
hopefully that game doesn't turn into League of Legends with guns in terms of just absolutely nonsensical character balance. I don't think it will, but it's Riot, so you can never really put it past them. But that's it for today's episode. Hope you all enjoyed. If you like the show, leave it a good rating on Spotify or iTunes or whatever you use. Share it around with your friends. Follow on social media, either my personal Twitter at RealPatterson50 or the shows at Mashup underscore pod. Uh, show is on Facebook as well, just the mashup. And if you want to support the show even more, there is a Patreon page, patreon.com slash the mashup. If you can support me over there on Patreon, I would really appreciate it. If you can't, obviously I understand. And any other help you can do, like sharing, rating, reviewing, subscribing, all that other stuff would also be just as appreciated. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Hope you enjoyed your week. And I will talk to you on Friday. See you then.